In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask you for pardon of my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today we celebrate the great feast of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the 8th of December, usually or always at the beginning of Advent. And in some ways we can see the connection. It's part of the preparation for the coming of our Saviour, which we're preparing for right now, Mary's Immaculate Conception, conceived without sin so as to be the mother of our Redeemer. And we spend these days coming up to Christmas Day trying to relive the preparation, the anticipation of so many centuries. And perhaps the best way to begin our prayer, or even to to spend the day, is by repeating the words of the angel, to her, hail, full of grace. Those words which uh, confused her. She was greatly troubled at the saying and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. Hail, full of grace. In a way, it sums up everything we believe and everything that we celebrate on this great feast day, that Mary is full of the grace of God, that she is her tainted nature's solitary boast. In her, we see the fulfilment, the completion of the redemption, almost, well, really before the redemption occurs. It's already, it's already being applied to, to her. So when we say hail full of grace, we're saying a lot. And apart from the fact that it seems to sum up what we would like to say to her and to praise her, to give her honour and, and glory as we venerate her in the presence of God, it's also really coming to help us understand what we're celebrating. She is full of grace, conceived without sin. That's a sort of, I suppose, a negative way, conceived without stain, immaculate conception. But hail full of grace, full of the grace of God and full of human grace as well because her human nature, unlike ours, is not tainted by, by sin is not tainted with the after effects and the, uh, I suppose, the kindling of sin as the rest of us are. She is utterly, as Bernanos would say, you know, the only child 
uh, soul, completely innocent soul that uh, that has ever existed. And she is older and younger than the whole human race. So we can, we're saying all of that and more when we say, Hail, full of grace. In the first reading, we read about the prophecy which was made after the fall. Prophecy made to uh, our first parents and indeed to the serpent. After the man, Adam, had eaten of the tree, the Lord God called to the man and asked him, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And after the, the man, after Adam and Eve explain how they have been tempted into turning away from trusting in God, their creator, wishing to make their own way in the world at the tempting and prompting of the, the, the serpent who promised them that they, they would be like God, which of course is ultimately what God wants us to be, like him. We are made in his image and likeness and in Christ we really do approach the, the very life of God. In him we can, uh, we are loved by God. We are his beloved sons and daughters. But they wanted to achieve this on their own in a way and they began to see God somehow as a rival to, to their own glory and to their own progress at the devil's uh, prompting. So as a result of this, the, the, prophe the prophecies come. I, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. So this mysterious woman, I will put enmity between you and the woman. It's hard to see that Eve is the only one meant here because she had gone along with the, the temptation. But we can glimpse in the words of the, the prophecy the coming of this other woman who will be part and parcel of the great adventure of the redemption and ultimately would be the mother of our Saviour, the mother of our uh, Redeemer. And we can join in with the centuries of expectation people looking forward to this moment, to the Immaculate Conception and ultimately to the birth of our Saviour, which we're also thinking about these days. We can join in that expectation and I think it is good, like Advent is really helpful because it really does tell us that we're, we're not there yet. We, we still have to await, just as those generations of Israelites and others too, without realizing it, had been awaiting this moment. It's good for us to, to join in, in a sense, as well, and to find ourselves preparing.
and even realizing that we're not worthy to yet to be uh, at the stable to be called like the shepherds were that we need to prepare ourselves to simplify our approach perhaps or to make our prayer more personal because how, how could prayer be anything but personal when you think of you know a child who's going to be born in a in a stable you just want to go and help out in whatever way you can uh, whatever you can do whatever I can do I want to I want to do that so our prayer can become really simple and straightforward what, what can I do how can I help how can I clean out the stable how can I make it more pleasant warmer and of course we realize well, the way we can do that is by just cleaning out the stable of our own hearts and uh, our minds and allowing God to dwell therein in all the different ways that we can do that where we know you know greater charity or bit more hard work or filling out the day really constructively in spite of our temptation to laziness or whatever it may be there's always something that we can do in a personal way to welcome our Lord and this preparation this sense that we still have to get things right it's not not a done deal we need the sacraments we need confession we need Holy Communion we need to really allow our Lord to touch us in those ways so that we can be his dwelling place so that we can be the stable where he finds a welcome with Mary and Joseph, whom we probably feel totally sort of out of our depths when we think of them. But, well, we can help in some way, and that's the main thing. St. Paul, in the second reading, tells us that, well, he first of all helps us to bless God. Blessed be, brothers and sisters, blessed be, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blem without blemish before him. Obviously there we see the reference to, to the feast day, holy and without blemish, without sin. He chose us in Christ even before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. He chose us in Christ. In fact, in that first few verses of the letter to the Ephesians, St. Paul uses the word in Christ or in him or in the Son over and over to show us that the graces that we have received, they're, they're in Christ. It's, it's in him that we are beloved by God. And it's the same for Mary, obviously at a higher level. Uh, he chose her in Christ as well. The great Scottish uh, theologian, uh, Duns Scotus, back in the 13th to 14th century, he, he, um, he, he came up with a, a way of explaining this, that the merits of Christ on, on the cross, 
were foreseen by God and applied to to Mary and this was a difficult concept to understand but of course it's easy for us to understand when we think of how you know God was choosing a woman to be the mother of his beloved son and of course he would be able to and would want to crown her with all the graces all the gifts and all the favour that would be appropriate that would allow her to be his mother daughter of God the father mother of God the son spouse of God the Holy Spirit and, and this gradually matured in the life of the church. Obviously, it's a relatively recent feast day, 1854. Pope Blessed uh, Pius IX uh, declared the, the dogma after he had consulted all the bishops of the world and um, well over 90% of them felt this was really appropriate and, this was what their people believed and this was the time to, um, to declare this in an official uh, manner as a kind of development of the, the teaching uh, of the church which doesn't ever change but we unpack new facets and new dimensions uh, of it and this is an, an aspect of the teaching of the church which was always believed even early the fathers of the church back you know, 1500 years ago we're speaking you know, there's no such thing as sin when it comes to, to Mary they didn't explain how this would could have been but they were pretty convinced that it was the case and gradually as the church matured in her first of all her celebrating this feast day which gradually was permitted as a really appropriate thing by bishops and then popes and then became more widespread universal and little by little with the kind of sort of infallibility of the Catholic sense of the people of God were under their bishops and the Pope, it all kind of gets tied together in 1854. And that's how dogma does develop, how we do unpack the riches of Revelation over the centuries. A hundred years later almost, you have the dogma of the assumption and presumably there'll be further dogmas when you know when the thinking and the, the, the liturgical celebrations of other features of the christian life may may mature and people will sense this also requires to be defined obviously it doesn't happen very often but it does happen so he he chose us saint paul says in him and he chose Mary in him. And it's good to think that, you know, we, we, we have been chosen in Christ. Uh, when you think of, you know, the baptism in the Jordan, when the Father speaks those extraordinary words, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Well, in, in him... 
the Father is also pleased with, with you and with me because we are in Christ. We are conformed to him by, by the sacraments, by the graces we have received, which are the graces, the grace of Christ that Christ has won for us. And he wants us to share that sort of divine filiation, that sense of being daughters and sons of a good father that he has. Obviously, he at a, a different level to us, but at the same time, he wants to share that with us. And clearly, he shared it with, with his mother in a particular way. One of the reasons that the dogma took so long to, um, I suppose, unfold was that some people felt, well, it, perhaps it casts some doubt on the universality of redemption. Some of the uh, Mary escaped redemption, which all human beings need to be redeemed, including, including her. But she was redeemed in a different way, in a more exalted way. She was preserved from sin, whereas we're, we're cleansed, washed free of it at baptism and subsequently in sacrament of confession too. But Mary was completely preserved free from that heritage of, of sin. So she was redeemed by Christ, but just differently, in a more uh, illustrious and, and exalted kind of way. So I suppose that's useful to, to think about, that you know, it's, she, was, she is the first of the redeemed because of the, the way in which she, she was redeemed. And finally, we come to the gospel, which is the gospel of the Annunciation which we're so uh, familiar with, we, we know it off by heart. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming to her, he said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Pope John Paul, in an encyclical about Mary, which he wrote, Redemptoris Matter, in 1987, he meditates a little bit on that greeting. And he particularly points out that the angel doesn't use her name. He doesn't say, Hail Mary, as we do in the prayer, Hail the Hail Mary. He just simply says, Hail, full of grace. Ave gratia plena. The Lord is with you. And he muses that really he does use her name because that is her, her identity before God, full of grace, full of the love of God, which fills her and which she embraces to the full and makes her own. How often we hear the Gospels telling us this, you know, she meditated on this, and treasured these things in her heart. Not just the words that she hears, but also the reality of the, the, the new reality of her life. There's a famous statue of the Annunciation, which pictures Mary not being addressed by the angel, but after the angel has left her with her arms folded over her, under her heart, 
cherishing the new reality that is her divine motherhood and just savouring the, uh, the joy and uh, being grateful for what she has uh, received. So the Annunciation really, it's no wonder it's one of the most pictured mysteries in the Gospel, perhaps apart from the uh, crucifixion, that moment when eternity bursts into time and takes our world, introduces the presence of God in a new way into this finite, limited world of ours. And she receives this great news. It's funny that in the Gospel, and not just in the Gospel, but the Old Testament, and we kind of, I suppose we all appreciate this fact, that whenever anybody receives a grace, and clearly she's received the most extraordinary grace here in this episode of the Annunciation in her whole life, but particularly concentrated upon this moment, a grace always involves a mission. Whether it's Moses or Abraham or David or, um, or Mary, uh, the highest mission of all. There's always a mission involved. Jesus, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. But that's at the moment when he is being commissioned, as it were, in an official way, or uh, taking up in an official way his mission as the Redeemer in a public kind of manner after the baptism. Well, Mary too, she receives this great grace, but it's a mission. And in a certain sense, we are that mission of hers. We are her, her children. She's responsible for us. At the foot of the cross, she was, this was specified. Jesus says to her, behold your son. And talking to, the, to, to John, behold your mother. And while it doesn't say very much, just a couple of words, Our Lady doesn't need things to be explained to her. She knows exactly what's involved here. And you can see it straight away, like she's with the apostles waiting, awaiting the Holy Spirit. And the church for, you know, down the centuries has always found herself turning to her, knowing that she is the one that as the apostles turned to her in the upper room when Jesus left them, well, the church still turns to Mary. Mary herself says in the Magnificat, all generations will call me blessed. Yes, we, we call her blessed, but we also call her our mother. And as a result, we know that she's always there for us. Never was it known that anyone who fled to her protection, implored her help, or sought her intercession was, was left unaided. It just doesn't happen. So we are that mission of hers. And she is really happy to take it on. She wants to be a mother. As she wanted to be a mother to, to Jesus, she also wants. We're not a chore. We're not... You know, we're not kind of getting in her way. She, it's her mission. It still is her mission to be uh, our our mother, and to be um, a 
aware of our needs. Like the wedding feast of Cana, where she's the one who, who realizes there's something wrong here. There's, they have no wine. And of course, we, we take that phrase, they have no wine, and we know it means just more, more than just the fact that they were short of wine for the wedding. Obviously, that was important, and Mary really did make sure that that was sorted. But it symbolizes so many needs that we have, especially the need for happiness, because obviously wine is associated with, with happiness. And, well, people sometimes find it hard to discover what really makes, what really makes us happy. And so in that sense too, she can say, you know, they have no wine. They don't know where to look. They don't know where to find the happiness that really lasts and can actually give you something that endures and that is, brings out the best uh, in you. And so we can hear her saying that sometimes, they have no wine. He has no wine, she has no wine. The angel left her. The gospel ends. It's a funny phrase. Obviously he had to leave her eventually, but the gospel actually puts it in there. The angel departed from her, leaving her alone, leaving her on her own now to, uh, to manage this great vocation. Though of course she was never really on her own, but she had to bring the mission and vocation she'd received into her daily life in Nazareth, her, um, you know, her work and her, her family as it would be, and which would be pretty ordinary. Mary's life was not full of huge spectacular events, events and adventures. It was fairly normal, like our own, in some ways. You know, one day after another. In and through those ordinary days, she found Jesus, and she can help us to find him too. So let's finish by asking her to give us the same sense of the presence of our Lord and the same sensitivity to his presence with us, around us, helping us, so that we can thank him and ask him for help, as she must have done. I give you thanks, my God for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you for help to put them into effect. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.